Good morning. Well, welcome to Water Church again. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here at the North Attleboro campus. One church, three locations, Norwood, Taunton, and North Attleboro, Massachusetts. So how are we feeling? Good? Last Yesterday, the team pulled off a fantastic family fest. If you were there, you want to just give our volunteers a hand? The volunteers were amazing. Thank you so much. Everybody who participated and everybody who worked on that on that thing was just spot on and all-stars for our church this weekend. So today we start Daniel, and uh, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 1. Take out your Bibles. Let's go there, Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to take a look at Daniel. I want to make sure that you're aware of something. I didn't say this in the beginning last night, but I want to make sure you're aware of something, that we're not going to look at Daniel today as in, here's what you need to do. To be like Daniel. That will come in subsequent weeks, but today we're going to look at a broad picture of the book of Daniel. And this is going to lay a foundation for the entire series. Uh, Daniel is kind of like a movie. Our opener was kind of like a movie. Wasn't that like a movie, movie trailer? And uh, our tech team just does such a great job with those things. Uh, and, and Daniel, when you read the first six chapters, it reads like a fantastic movie. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of drama. There's a lot of scary moments like being thrown into a fire. Uh, that is a scary moment. And then there's a lot of redemption and there's a lot of deliverance. And it's a, it's a lot like a James Bond movie. How many James Bond movie fans are there out here today? Yeah. Very, very, very excited one over here. And... <laughs> I went and saw the last one with him. He is excited about James Bond. Um, I, I like movies. I don't like movies when it looks like the bad guy's going to win. How many know that at the end of a lot of James Bond movies, they, they do this, they build the tension. Of course, we love the tension. But sometimes the movie gets too close to the end, and it still looks like the bad guy is going to win. I hate that moment. I get all nerved up. I don't want the bad guy to win. And, and if you're like me, we have this new technology in our moving wa movie watching experience where we have the capacity to press pause and see just how much is left of the movie. I'm talking about home movies and when you watch it in your house. How many enjoy the fact that you can just, you can just press pause and see where is that little, that little diamond on the bar? Yes, you like that? I like it. It, it makes me feel like I'm in control of the movie watching experience. And sometimes I'm watching the movie that looks like the bad guy is going to win, and I'm, and I'm sitting there, and I'm continuing to press pause. Um, some of you young people, let me explain something to you. This whole pressing pause and seeing how much left, uh, is left of the movie, this is a new development. Right? Everybody under 25, listen to me very carefully. We didn't have this growing up. Okay? We just had to watch the movie and hope for the best and, and just trust that it was going to end at some point. Because we used to watch movies on what they have, what they called VHS. How many remember VHS? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just dated yourself. And, and VHS cassette tapes would go into the VCR, and we would press play, and that was it. You just sat there and watched, and if you pressed pause, all you got was this fuzzy picture of pause action. And, and there was no telling when the movie was going to end. So you'd be at the end of the movie, and the guy, bad guy is winning, and you're like, this is going to end bad. The bad guy's going to win. I hate the fact that I just wasted two hours of my life. That's how I am. 
So when I'm watching a DVD or a, now you watch on Apple TV or Netflix or Roku or whatever, there's a thousand of them out there now. And you press pause, you can see how much time is left. And sometimes I press pause and there's like three minutes left. And you know they got about five minutes for credits. So eight minutes is really like three minutes. And the bad guy's winning and you're sitting there wondering, are they really going to be able to, is the, is the good guy really going to be able to fall down three flights of stairs, not break a bone, get up, cut the white wire on the bomb? <laughs> it's always the white wire. I don't know why they freak out. It's always the white wire. He's going to get up, cut the white wire, shoot the bad guy in the head, catch the girl who falls from four flights down, and, and live happily ever after. And I'm like, this is just not going to happen. And I get so frustrated at that moment. And I, sometimes I turn to Cheryl and I say, I can't believe we just wasted this time in our lives because I could have done without this moment. <laughs> what do you do when it looks like the bad guy's going to win? Because let's be honest, sometimes life looks like the bad guy's going to win. Am I right? Sometimes it looks like you, you look at the country and you look at the culture and you look at the way things are going morally in our nation and you're just like, is the bad guy going to win here? Sometimes you, you look at your job and, and you're doing the right thing and everybody who's doing the wrong thing seems to be getting ahead and it's like, is, is the bad guy going to win here? And sometimes in your own personal life, in your own private life, there's that addiction, there's that secret sin, there's that temptation that, that, that just keeps getting you down, keeps beating you down. And you've been wrestling with it for years, decades, and it's just every once in a while just, bam, throws you to the floor, and you are out for the count. And it's like you're wondering inside in your own personal private life, is the bad guy going to win? What do you do when the bad guy looks like? He's going to win. That, that's, that's what the book of Daniel is about. The book of Daniel is about kind of like the end of the DVD in God's big story. If you turn to Daniel in a paper Bible, you will notice that it's pretty close to the end of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament is very different than the New Testament. The Old Testament is, is, a, is a big, long story. It's a big, long story, and it's kind of like a movie. And, and the story has a backstory. Uh, theologians call the backstory of God's story uh, Genesis 1 through 11. That's the backstory. And then most theologians agree that the story of God's redemption, the story of God's hero, really begins in Genesis chapter 12 with a guy named Abraham. Abraham is really old and miraculous, and his wife is really old, and miraculously they have this baby. And God says through this baby, I am going to bless all nations. And he says to Abraham, you are going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have uh, descendants that will outnumber the stars, the sky, and the sand of the seashore. And God's story begins with one man, one birth, and then this one man becomes a nation of people. And they're miraculously delivered from Egypt after 400 years of slavery. Ten plagues. They've made a movie about that one. They've made a couple of movies about that one. 
And then they get this king, and his name is David, and David is a righteous king. And then he has a son, and his son is the wisest man that ever lived. And, and, and he establishes the kingdom and the sacrificial system, and everything in that temple is ornate and decorated with gold. It's beautiful. It's awesome. It looks like everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be wonderful. And then slowly, the story starts to shift, and sin starts to creep into the nation. It begins with the king, and it starts uh, 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 trickling down throughout all the people. And then God starts to bring judgment and, and nations up against his people. These, these are his people, the Israelites. And, and, and there's a nation rising up against them over here, and, and they're fighting them off. And, and sometimes, miraculously, God just delivers them, and, and it's like a warning shot. It's like God's saying, you need to get back to what's important. And then another nation rises up against them over here, and, and it's another warning shot. And, and there's this huge, this long per, uh, history of Israel just fighting off all these enemies. And then you get to Daniel, and they haven't learned. And they haven't gotten back to God. And they've actually gotten as bad as they can possibly get. And when you open the book of Daniel, it looks like it's over. We are in the last three minutes of the DVD, and the bad guy's coming into Jerusalem, the city of God, and he's going to destroy it. What do you do when it looks like the bad guy is going to win? Well, what does God do? What does God do? That's a better question, right? What does God do? In our lives, in our world, in our culture, in our country, in our private life, when it looks like the bad guy's going to win. Let's look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the third year, I want, first off, I want to just read the first two verses, and then we're going to stop there and we're going to look at that. The difference um, between verse 1 and verse 2 for a second. Verse 1 says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Judah was God's people. In the third year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, this is a bad guy, uh, king of Babylon, these are the bad people, <laughs> uh, came to Jerusalem, this is God's city, and besieged it. It says, verse 1, the bad guy comes into the good guy territory and takes control. The, the subject of this verse, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, his name means Nebo, a false god of the Babylonians, Nebo is the protector of fortune. He's a godless king. He's a pagan king. He's an evil man. Up until this point in his life, he has been dominating the entire world. Every nation falls below Nebuchadnezzar. And what he does is he goes into a nation, and, he'll sur and, and this is his history. He surrounds the main city, and he stops food from getting into the city and people from getting out of the city. It's called besieging the city. And they'll just stay there for about three years until the city is in such a horrible famine that they even start turning on each other, and they turn into cannibals. This is what's happening in God's city. And he's starving them out. And it does not look Good. And the thing is, is that the object of his besieging in this sentence is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, kind of a big deal in God's story. This is the city of David, the city of God, the city of Solomon. This is the city where the temple was built. This is the city where every Jew went once a year, most times, three times a year, to meet with 
God. It was their home. It was their spiritual capital. It was the symbol that, that their God was with them. That's what Jerusalem was. And now their biggest enemy is coming into their city and destroying it. But look at verse 2. Verse 2, the subject changes. See if you notice it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Did you see it? Verse 2. Look at it again. And the Lord, the Lord, the God, their God, their, their Jehovah, their, their promise maker, promise keeper. This is their faithful God. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, their king, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Does this sound crazy? What is Daniel trying to show us right here in the first two verses? What is Daniel trying to say to us that we need to know that when it looks like the bad guy is winning in our lives, in our personal lives, in our jobs, wherever we are, what do we need to know? Here's what we need to know. Point number one, if you're taking notes, no matter what happens, even when the bad guy wins, listen to me, God still rules. Even when the bad guy wins, God rules. God is still in charge. That's what verse 2 is trying to tell you. Verse 2 is trying to say, it looks bad. And I know it looks like the enemies of your nation, Israel, are coming against you, besieging you. But guess what? God's making this happen. Did you know that God can use anybody? God can even use people like Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what another prophet said about Nebuchadnezzar. This, this is interesting. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 9. Jeremiah says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Next two words, everybody. My servant. God says Nebuchadnezzar is not just this evil king and this godless pagan king. Nebuchadnezzar, God says, is my servant. Guess what this means? It means that God can use the pagans. God can use the bad people. And some of us, we need to understand this for our lives. That no matter what it looks like in the political realm of our nation, and no matter what it looks like in our state or in our region, no matter what it looks like in the, in the agenda of the secularists and the progressives who want to remove the name of God and all the Christian heritage from this nation, and no matter what it looks like in your job, and no matter what it looks like in your marriage, and no matter what it looks like even in your personal life before God, no matter how bad it looks and how defeated you look, I got good news for you. Above all the rulers of this earth, there's an ultimate ruler, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he He's in charge. This is, this is really good. Uh, this is really good preaching for right after uh, elections. <laughs> right? Because there are some Christians that just freak out when their guy does not get to the presidency. And they just start thinking, oh, sign of the times, sign of the times. It's the end. This is God's judgment. This is what God does. We don't obey, so God sends us a President Obama or whatever, or a Governor Patrick or whatever. And we start freaking out, and we're like, why? Listen to me. God rules. God 
God rules over the nations. And some of you got you to give something up. And I'm really asking you to do this. You got to let it go with America being like this Christian nation thing. Just let it go. That's, that's, that ship has sailed, ladies and gentlemen. And, 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 I, and, I, and the thing is, is that, that God is not really only looking at America. And his eye is not on Washington, D.C. Do you know where his eye is on? His eye is on his people. And his people are in America and South America and Canada and Europe and all the nations of the earth. God's kingdom has spread across the earth. And I'm not about God blessing America. I'm about God blessing his church, the kingdom of God, the people of God, the family of Jesus Christ. Over all the nations of the world, God rules. And that is what Daniel is trying to show us. But there's something else that Daniel wants to show us. What is God doing? Why is God letting this evil, godless king come into his nation and take all those, all those things away? Well, the next couple of verses give us a clue. The next couple of verses go like this. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand and some of the vessels of the house of God. These are the treasures of God's temple. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then I'm not going to read verses 3 and 4 to you. You can read them later. But verses 3 and verses 4 tell us that Nebuchadnezzar then goes into the city and he takes out the best of the best of their young men the ones that are highly educated, the ones who are skillful. It's like he goes in and he takes the MIT students out of the nation, the Harvard students. And they're also the sons of the king, the, the, the sons of nobility. He goes in and he takes all the best of the best and he starts to train these guys in the ways and in the literature and in the history of the Babylonians. What's he trying to do? He's trying to indoctrinate God's people. And he's trying to absorb God's people into Babylon. This was his method. This was his means of dominating the world. And so Nebuchadnezzar is taking over the temple. He's taking over uh, the city. He's taking over the young men. And he's brought them. And, and then he's also taken over the treasures of the temple. And he's brought them to Babylon. Why is Daniel mentioning this in the first chapter? Why is he telling us all this? He's giving us, a, he's, he wants us to understand there's a backstory here. There's a backstory that almost all the Jews now know today. And Daniel knew then when it was happening. See, long before Daniel ever was around, Israel had another king. The king's name was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah lives about 100 years before Daniel, and he's king. And he's a good king, but he ends badly. And one time during his kingship, at around 2 Kings chapter 19, the Assyrian nation starts to come against Israel. This is while they're like playing fools with God, and they're rebelling against God, and they're worshiping idols. And so God raises up the Assyrians. And Hezekiah is freaked out. It looks like the nation's going to be destroyed. The Assyrian army has surrounded Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers. And Hezekiah prays, and he asks God for a miracle deliverance. Guess what God does? He miraculously delivers. And in 2 Kings chapter 19, this angel comes into the Assyrian camp, and he slays 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and the nation is miraculously delivered. That's a powerful moment. But what 
happens next is crazy. Second Kings chapter 20, the Bible says that a, the Babylonians send an envoy into Israel to meet with Hezekiah. And the reason why they come to meet with Hezekiah is because they just saw what Hezekiah did to the Assyrians. And they decide, because they're enemies of the Assyrians too, they decide to buddy up with Hezekiah. And they come to visit him. And the Bible says in 2 Kings 19 that Hezekiah shows the Babylonians all his treasures, all his money, and all of his wealth. And he doesn't make one mention of God. And they start making this little political alliance. And that's exactly what Hezekiah is doing. And in one chapter, listen, in one chapter, Hezekiah goes from trusting in the Lord his God to trusting in money and wealth resources and telling the nation of Babylon I can be a powerful political ally with you against Assyria isn't it funny how sometimes that's what we do by the way that God will miraculously do stuff in our lives and then we just kind of like leave his protection and his, his plan and we start to trust in ourselves we start to trust in what we have. We start to look at what we got. We start to look at our resources and our blessings. And we start to love the blessings and forget the blesser. We start to love the gifts and forget the giver. And that's exactly what Hezekiah has done. And he's starting to make political allegiances. And Isaiah the prophet comes and he rebukes Hezekiah sharply. And here's what he says. And this is what Daniel would have known. He says in 2 Kings 20, verse 16, Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. This is Isaiah speaking 100 years earlier. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and, notice what he says here, some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And that is Daniel, and we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and somebody help me, Abednego. Sons of the king have been captured and placed into the palace of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar takes their treasures, their land, their temple, and their teenagers and wipes out the nation. And verse 2 says, the Lord did this. The Lord did this. Why? Because God, God's people had forgotten that God was their trust. They had decided that they could do it without God. They could become somebody important without the help of their Lord. And they had done what so many Christians tend to do. They got a little bit blessed, and then they started to turn around and say, look at how blessed I made myself. They got a little bit strong, and they started to think, see, I can make it on my own. And God starts to say, no, you can. On top of that, they're just, they're just filled with idolatry. They're worshiping the gods of wood. Hay, stone, they're worshiping the gods of silver, fertility, uh, they're sacrificing their children. It's ridiculous. They have lost their identity and they become just like all the nations around them. And they're supposed to be a different kind of people who put all their faith and all their trust in the Lord their God. So God sends them off. And here's how Daniel puts it, verse 2. Let's look at it again. 
Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar. Shinar. Why does he mention Babylon as Shinar? Well, there's backstory there too. The first time that we hear about Shinar in the Bible is Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 11, what happens is the people of the land decide to make a tower. And they start making bricks and mortar and they start building this tower. And we know it is called the Tower of Babel. God, the people without God decide to become great without God. God comes down and looks at it, and the Bible says he scatters, he confuses their speech, and he scatters the nations, and they leave the tower. And then isn't it funny, though, that Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12 is where the story starts with Abraham. And Daniel says God brings them back to the land of Shinar as if to say God's bringing them right back from where they came from. The funny thing about Daniel chapter 1 is that in the first five verses, the entire Old Testament story, which took about 1,500 years from Abraham to Daniel, that entire history is being wiped out in five verses. They lose their freedom. That's what, that's what Moses got them, their freedom, when he delivered them from Israel, Egypt. They lose their land. That's what Joshua got them in the book of Joshua. They lose their temple. That's what David gave them in the book of First and Second Samuel. And Solomon built and, 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 and dedicated to God. They lose their temple. And then they lose their, their royal lineage. That was the descendants of Solomon and David and the kings that, that God promised to bless and, and prosper greatly if they kept his covenant. But they didn't do that. They didn't keep the covenant of God. And so God just removes everything from their lives. And all that they held dear in 1,500 years of history are wiped out in five verses. How many know sometimes... The bad guy can win real quickly. What's God doing? God's showing them, number one, I rule, but number two, God removes. God removes. He takes away their nation, their temple, their king. All of it's gone. And it doesn't sound very encouraging, but, but, but sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, God is in the removal business. And he'll take stuff away from you that you hold too dearly. And, and some of you, that's, that's your story. You know it. You had, you had a, a family that you thought that was going to be the family that you were always going to have, and, and divorce happened. And you had a job, and you thought that job was all that you would ever need in life, and, and the company cut you loose. Or you had, that, you had that 401k, and then the stock market, bam, and then it was gone. And it's like, what now? Or you had that, that life that you had planned out since you were a little kid and you thought this is exactly and everything was going to plan and then suddenly life happened and God took it all away. God's in the removal business. Why does God remove? God removes so that we remember that nothing in this life is permanent. There is no constancy outside of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is the one constant that never leaves us and never forsakes us. And sometimes God has to remove other things to get us on the main thing. Sometimes this just not happen. God rules and God removes and he's just wiping out the nations and he's just reminding them, listen, your, your money didn't get you here. Your in intuition did not get you here. Your ingenuity didn't get you here. Your smarts didn't get you here. God's saying, I got you here. And you forgot that. Sometimes God removes all those things so that we look back to God and we say, all right, now what are we going to do? And we're going to put our eyes back on Jesus. 
happens. Kind of like God's training program. God's, God's reorienting program. Sifting, the Bible calls it. He'll sift you as wheat. He'll, he'll chisel you. The Bible says in Proverbs uh, 17, 17, that one man sharpens another. How do you know sometimes God's sharpening program for your life to get you back on point? God's sharpening program is somebody that you don't like. And they're just chiseling at you and chiseling at you and chiseling at you. And you're like, I, I don't want this in my life. And God's like, this is exactly what I want in your life. This is going to keep you on your knees. This is going to keep you close to me. Because listen, if God took away all your problems tomorrow, there's a good chance you'd never come back to church again. You'd be like, oh, I'm good. <laughs> I got all I need. Why, why do I need God? I'm doing all right. And look at this. I can do it. And that's exactly where we find ourselves so many times. But I, but I found, I, I found that, that, that God does something strange when we get full of ourselves. He just empties us out. And it's kind of like his, his, his bungee cord of life. You know, when you got saved, that, that, that when you came to the cross, God attached a bungee cord right here, right here, spiritually speaking, to the back of you. And the bungee cord's name is the Holy Spirit. And here's what happens. You, you get saved and you love Jesus. Suddenly you're starting to think, okay, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Boing, and you're just like back to the cross. And you start thinking, no, I'm good, I'm good, God, I'm good, God. Boing, and you start getting pulled back to the cross. And some of you, this is how you are. I feel bad for you. You're like, I'm really going to get away from God now. And you're running and running and running. And it's like the farther and faster you run, how many know that's the faster that you step back to the cross? That's the power of God's Holy Spirit. He's going to keep you right where he wants you. Sometimes he does it by removing stuff from you. It's exactly what happens here in Daniel chapter 1. God rules, God removes, and this is the third point, number three. God rules, God removes, and God resets. Sometimes we need a reset. Here's what the Bible says. God's reset for the people of Israel is a man. His, man, his name is Daniel. Daniel is the reset button on God's discipleship program. And and. It, the Bible mentions four men. Here's what it says in verse 6. Among the captives were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But we know that most of the story is about Daniel. And Daniel, for the most part, throughout the book, watches over the three friends. And I want to run down with you a couple of highlights of Daniel's story. Here's what the book's going to tell us about Daniel. Number one, Daniel is going to stay completely true to the Lord his God. He's going to obey God perfectly. He's not going to let the Babylonians influence him. He's not going to be conformed to their pattern and, and, and be absorbed into their culture. He's going to stand apart. One man. The second thing that the Bible is going to tell us is that Daniel is going to be filled with understanding and wisdom and knowledge. He's going to be wiser than all of his associates and contemporaries. God's going to bless Daniel. God's going to esteem Daniel. And then the Bible says that, that, that Daniel keeps going back to the second in command. You watch every story. Daniel keeps going back to the second in command of the entire kingdom. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to put him as second in command. And then Nebuchadnezzar is going to die and his son's going to take over. And Belshazzar is going to put him as second in command. 
And that's kind of funny because Belshazzar's uh, reign lasts for about six hours, and then he dies. And there's Daniel, and he's going to be put second in command to uh, Cyrus, I mean, Darius. And then Darius is going to die, and then Cyrus is going to become king, and Daniel's going to be second in command to da- Cyrus. And it's all the while, as, listen, as kingdoms rise and as kingdoms fall, Daniel's still at second in command the whole time. He ain't moving. And then at the pinnacle of his story, the pinnacle of the book, his own friends are going to conspire against him. And they're going to trump up false charges against Daniel. And they're going to get him convicted and executed. And they're going to throw him into a pit. And the Bible is very specific about the language here. They roll a stone over the pit with the lions in it. And the next day, the king gets up early, and he's going to roll the stone away and pull up Daniel. And Daniel's going to come up out of the stone, out of that pit, unharmed and untouched by death. This is what the Bible is saying. Hear me very carefully. The Bible is not saying, first off with Daniel, be like Daniel and all is well. That's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is showing us a picture of God's reset button. Because who else do we know, ladies and gentlemen, who obeyed God's commandments perfectly? Who else do we know who was filled with wisdom and knowledge beyond everybody else's understanding? Who else do we know who sits at the right-hand side of the king of the universe as nations come and nations fall and nations kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall? And he keeps sitting there at the second-in-command position. And who else do we know went into a pit that had the stone rolled over it and then was rolled away on the third day and came up untouched by death? We know him as Jesus Christ, and he's alive today and seated at the right-hand side of God the Father. And here's the deal. Here's the deal. As Daniel was that protection in the throne room for Israel, Jesus is the protection for us in the throne room of God. This is what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 8 is going to say it like this. uh, Romans, I'm sorry. Romans chapter 8 is going to say it like this. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What do you do when it looks like the bad guy's going to win? You remember that you've got Jesus in the throne room, and he's praying for you. And no matter what God's training program means for you, and no matter what God takes away from you, the good news is this. If Christ be for us, who can be against us? And if Jesus Christ is alive and Jesus Christ reigns and Jesus Christ rules, I don't have to worry about who's in the White House. And I don't have to worry about who's on Beacon Hill. And I don't, care, I don't have to worry about what's happening to the culture. And I don't have to worry about exactly what's happening to our nation. We should pray for them. We should hope the best for them. And we should try to bless this community in the name of Jesus. But ultimately, no matter what the kings of this earth do, no matter what it looks like down here, I know that Jesus is reigning up there. And I'm good with that. That's how we're called to live. But God wants to fill you with confidence, friend. In the midst of the times where it seems like everything's being taken away from you, sometimes that's the only way that God can get your attention. Put your faith completely and totally on Jesus. 
Here's what Peter says. This, this, this had to be. This had to be what Peter had in mind when he wrote his epistle. And, and I want to read the introduction. This is like where we're going to close. But, but I want to read the introduction from the message version. Because Peter's talking to us now. Our Daniel's in the throne room. Our Daniel is Jesus. And here's what Peter says. I, Peter, am an apostle on assignment by Jesus, the Messiah. Writing to what? Exiles. Any exiles in the house today? Yes? You're all exiles, by the way, just letting you know. This isn't our home. Writing to the exiles scattered to the four winds. Not one is missing. Not one is forgotten. God the Father has his eye on each of you and has determined by the work of the Spirit to keep you obedient through the sacrifice of Jesus. May everything good from God be yours. What a God we have. And how fortunate we are to have him, this father of our master, Jesus. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we've been given a brand new life and everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. He says, God is keeping careful watch over us and the future. The day is coming when you will have it all, life healed and whole. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have to put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Sometimes I just love how the message puts it. I know how great this makes you feel, even though you have to put up with every kind of aggravation in the meantime. Pure gold put in the fire comes out of it proved pure. Genuine faith through this suffering comes out proved genuine. When Jesus wraps this all up, it's your faith, not your gold, that God will have on display as evidence of his victory. You never saw him, yet you love him. You don't see him, yet you trust him. With laughter and singing, because you kept on believing, you'll get what you're looking forward to, total salvation. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? This is the message of Daniel. God rules. Sometimes God removes, but ultimately God resets. Maybe that's where God has some of you right now. It's just, it's just reset time. Would you stand with me?